You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the opportunity to study it together. I pray that you would strengthen our faith and our knowledge in the truth that you want to communicate to us through this chapter. I pray that that knowledge, that truth would lead to an increased faith in you as we live out our lives daily. Father, I pray that you would change us through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would correct our thinking God, that you would give us right perspective based on your word. Father, we pray that that would radically change the way that we see everything going on in our life. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, challenge us. And, Father, I pray that we'd be able to use what we learned today to encourage one another as a church family. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to kind of bring us back up to speed with where we've been, we've looked at Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 and kind of seen Paul building on his argument about why we're condemned, uh, why we're unable to earn favor in God's eyes. Um, We've looked specifically at different types of people through Romans 1, 2, and 3. We've seen how all of humanity can be grouped into one of those categories, and if not, Romans 3 describes for us the complete depravity, the complete inability of man to do good in the eyes of God. We said that God is ultimately going to judge mankind one day based on the knowledge that he's had and how he's responded to that knowledge. And based on that standard, all men will be found guilty before God. But then in Romans 3.21, we see that 
a different way of being right with God has been made available by God, not through our performance, but through the performance of Christ. And so we can be saved from our sin. We can be saved from our rebellion, not by us trying to fix it with our own good works, but through the perfect work of Christ, both in his life and in his death. And then we saw uh, recently in Romans chapter four, how Paul highlights that this type of salvation through grace by faith is how it's always been. He goes back to the Old Testament, shows us the life of Abraham and how Abraham, contrary to Jewish tradition, was not saved by his good works, that he was ultimately saved by his faith, that he believed promises that God made, that he didn't obey commands that God gave him. We can see a pattern in his life where we see failure on his part. So he's ultimately not justified by obedience. He's not justified by uh, external circumstances or or ceremonies. We, we saw that uh, circumcision is something that happened later in his life after uh, his salvation, after he was justified. And so ultimately it all rests on his faith, his belief in the promises of God. And so that gives us a, a tangible example of how salvation works. And that was the purpose of Romans chapter four. All right, so that gets us into Romans chapter 5 today. Um, Romans chapter 5, we've seen Abraham in chapter 4 as a, uh, a, a representative of how salvation works. In Romans chapter 5, we're going to see uh, that continued theme of representatives. We're going to see how Adam is the representative for mankind's rebellion. And then we're going to see how Christ is is the representative for mankind's obedience. So Paul continues that theme of highlighting historical figures to show how the truths that he's trying to teach play out in reality, in real life time. So Abraham, this is how you get saved. Let me show you through the life of Abraham. Now he's going to show us why we're sinful and why justification works through Christ by showing us more tangibly through the life of Adam and through the life of Christ how this salvation works. Now, before we get into that, there's two terms that I want to make sure we're on the same page about this morning, both reconciliation and imputation. The definition for reconciliation is the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship. The removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. The removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. Reconciliation implies that something has gone awry in a relationship between two people. Something needs to be fixed. And so reconciliation is that fixing process, the working out of two parties coming back together in fellowship with each other. And then imputation is to reckon to one's account or to think of as belonging to someone. To reckon to one's account. Or to think of as belonging to someone. So it's to treat something as belonging to somebody, even though technically it doesn't. Imputation is to reckon it to somebody's account. It's to treat it as though it belongs to somebody, even though it doesn't. And those are terms that we're going to come back to throughout Romans chapter 5 today. All right, we're breaking up this chapter into two sections. There's the first half that really deals with the blessings of justification. And then the second half, starting in verse 12, 
that really deals with the consequences of headship. Uh, that representative idea of both Christ and Adam in regards to the human race. So we're going to see first the blessings that flow from justification. When, when justification is applied to our account, when we are declared righteous before God, what, what does that mean for us? What benefits does that bring to us as believers? And then ultimately seeing that play out through the headship concept of Adam and Christ. So we start here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, with the blessings of justification. The confidence of justification brings hope of final salvation, Paul tells us. That confidence in our current justification, it gives us a solidified hope in the future, and that future salvation that's coming for us one day. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you skip down... It says, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. There's two concepts here of peace and hope, a current peace and a future hope. Peace and hope are both based on our understanding of justification. Our current peace and our future hope, they're based on our current understanding of of justification. Now that's important because what I mean by that is the depth of knowledge that you have about justification is going to directly affect your current peace in life and your current hope for the future, which means if you're shallow in your understanding of justification, you're going to struggle to gain peace in life today. And you're going to struggle to maintain a proper perspective for the future. So it's absolutely necessary that we have a deep, deep understanding of justification. That's why we don't just breeze over this topic. That's why we're spending uh, week after week talking about this. It's why Paul spends chapter after chapter talking about this. It's why Adam and Tyson were required to write 10 page papers on this doctrine. Because it's absolutely crucial that you have a deep understanding of justification. Because these blessings that we're about to talk about, they flow from that understanding. In 1 Thessalonians 3, where we were a couple of years ago, Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Paul says, I sent Timothy to establish you in your faith. To give you that deep knowledge, that deep understanding of this truth, this truth of the gospel and how it works, because Paul says it directly applies to your life. It's not just about giving you seminary head knowledge about doctrines and topics. It's equipping you to know those things because it directly plays out Monday through Saturday when we're not here gathered together. The knowledge that you have is not just meant to puff you up. It's meant to directly play out all through the work week. Paul says you've got to grasp justification if you're going to get peace and hope that you desire. Peace and hope are strengthened through tribulation, Paul tells us in Romans 5. 
He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Know that suffering produces endurance and character and hope. So peace and hope, they're based on our knowledge of justification and they're strengthened as we go through hard times. So we need that knowledge and we need tough times to increase our peace and hope. And I would challenge you, if you don't feel like you could spend 15, 20, 30 minutes talking about the doctrine of justification, then you're not at a point where you know it deep enough. None of us are at a point where we know it deep enough. But if you can't talk 15 to 30 minutes about justification and the glories of that doctrine, then I'm going to challenge you that you need to study that doctrine more. Because you can't possibly understand the blessings that come from it and the benefits that come from it if you don't know it here. It won't play out in your daily life. Look what Paul says. Since we have been justified by faith, we have. In your notes there, that's a present reality. He says, because this has happened, we have some things. It's a present reality. You possess these things right now. This isn't future stuff. This is present stuff. The key to a Christian receiving every other blessing from God starts with him being justified. We don't get any of the other promises. We don't get any of the other blessings from God until we've been justified. And once we've been justified, once we've been made right with God, all the other blessings flow from that. It's the key. It's the door that opens up all of God's spiritual blessings for us. So until we're justified, we don't get that. So until we're justified, we read Romans 8 that says, be encouraged because all things work together for good. That doesn't apply to the non-believer. That promise has no relevance for the non-believer. It only applies to those that have been justified. It gives us comfort that God works for our good. You can't enjoy what you're ignorant of. You can't enjoy the benefits of justification if you're ignorant about justification. That's why we're spending so much time on this. You can have the benefits. The benefits could be there. The benefits are true. Paul says if you're justified, you have these things. You just may not be aware of it. Because you're, you're ignorant of what justification really is. You're ignorant of how that really looks in your life. An example, um, I, I, you guys know I study at McDonald's every weekend. One of the reasons that I've chosen to do that is because they don't have Wi-Fi. So I'm not distracted to, to get on the internet. There was actually a time yesterday when I needed the internet. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have to remember to, to come back and look on the internet for this when I get home. Because uh, I need this information. Girls cleaning, de- cleaning tables or whatnot, and she saw that I was on my computer, and she said, hey, are, did, were you able to log on to the Wi-Fi? And I was like, you guys don't have Wi-Fi. And, and she was like, yeah, we actually got it uh, a few months ago. We just haven't advertised it. She's like, here's the password. So that was a situation where there were benefits that were available to me at McDonald's. In fact, I needed those benefits right then. I wasn't aware that they were available, though. Benefits that are available, but being ignorant of the benefits causes me not to enjoy them. If we're not really aware of the doctrine of justification and what the Bible has to say about it, we're going to be ignorant of the blessings that come from it as well. Paul says, you've been justified, you have things. But in order for us to enjoy those things, we have to be knowledgeable of those things. So we spend time talking about it here. We spend spend time delving into God's word here to try to grasp that knowledge so that it plays out during our week. Paul says, we have certain things because we've been justified. I think it's important, too, to note that that word justified, it's past tense. It's accomplished. It's instantaneous. It's the same for every Christian. Nobody here is more justified than somebody else. 
And, and sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that way. Oh, I, I'm more acceptable to God because I've been living obedient, whereas so-and-so in my accountability group hasn't been. Poor guy, like he really needs to, to really improve on some things so that he can be as acceptable to God as I am. That's not the case. Justification means I've been declared right before God. That's an instantaneous act that gets applied to every Christian equally. Now, so when we talk about sanctification, we talk about growing in our knowledge, growing in our faith, growing in our Christ likeness. That's different for everybody. But the the key doctrine of being right with God, being in a relationship with God, that's equal for everybody. And that's important to grasp. That's important to know. That keeps us from from falling into a depressive state when we're when we're struggling through the sanctification process. Because too often we start to think sanctification is what makes me acceptable before God. That's what earns my right before God. That's what makes me um, righteous before Him. And that's not what Scripture teaches. We're all justified if we're believers here this morning. We've all been made right, and we're all equally right in God's eyes. It's a past tense verb. It's a past tense doctrine for us as Christians. There's some blessings that Paul tells us we have that you can write down if you want to. There's 11 of them that we're going to highlight. He says we've been justified by, by faith. We have, first of all, peace with God. We have peace with God, he tells us. This isn't a, a feeling of peace. This is a, a, uh, a status with God. There was enmity, there was issues there, and those issues, Scripture tells us, have been slain. They have been killed. God has rectified the issues that existed there between us and God if we're Christians. The enmity between God and the sinner has ended. It's been slain by Christ. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Christ is ultimately responsible for the peace that we now enjoy. Ephesians 2 12 through 17. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's broken that wall of hostility down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ is our peace. He accomplishes our peace. He unites all things to God through his work. We have peace with God when we've been justified. Secondly, we have access to God. We have access to God. 
It's a continuous access into God's presence. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Continuous access into God's presence. It's a truth. It's a privilege that's lost on our generation um, because we have no concept of not having access to God. We've never existed with the mentality that we didn't have the ability to just uh, come into the throne room of God through prayer. There was that, that picture in the Old Testament and then into that transitional period in the New Testament where, where God was closed off to the sinner through the veil and the tabernacle and in the temple. This perspective that, that we couldn't just go into God's presence, that there was a, a hostility there, there was, a, there was enmity that existed there, there was a, an issue that was still not completely worked out. And so we've lost that in the distance between where we are today and where the Jewish people were at that time. But the truth still exists for us, even though it may not carry the same weight. We have full access into the throne room of God because of the fact that we are justified, that we've been made right. Thirdly, we have the ability to stand. We have the ability to stand. When sin is counted against us, we can't stand. Psalms 1 talks about uh, the ungodly can't stand on the day of judgment. Revelation 6 says that when Jesus returns and the lost are before him, who will be able to stand? We've highlighted the fact that when Jesus accomplishes our salvation for us, he gives us the, the right to one day stand in the presence of God because our sin is completely removed and we're right and acceptable before God. Psalm 133 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? As Christians, we don't have to worry about God marking iniquities against us anymore. They've been erased. They've been eradicated. They've been forgiven, both past, present, and future. And when we stand before him one day, we won't have a list of iniquities that would keep us from standing before him. We'll be declared righteous in time. We'll have that visual picture of what it looks like to be acceptable to him. There's also joy in the future that we benefit from in being justified. There's a joy in the future, Paul tells us. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's a hope that we will one day possess glory. That hope of glorification where Christ will come and make all things right and sin will be completely removed from our life. We'll have perfect fellowship with each other. There'll never be hurt feelings. There'll never be let down expectations between how we interact with each other. It'll be perfect fellowship. Romans eight twenty nine. for those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have that joy to look forward to, that joy that, that we have now about our future, that future hope of glory. But then we also have, number five, joy in the present. There's a joy that exists for us in the present as well. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Paul says there's a there's a joy that exists right now for us. There's a joy in the future, but there's also a, a joy that we possess right now. Now, I want to highlight the same Greek structure that exists here where he says. 
We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, what, what do you think that means to say that we rejoice in our sufferings? Let me give me an explanation of what, what that practically looks like. How, what, do, what does it mean to rejoice in our sufferings? What does it mean to rejoice in our sufferings? Okay, so we have peace, knowing that God is allowing this to happen. Uh, it's going to produce good in us. Any other thoughts on what it means to rejoice in our sufferings? Okay, yeah, we can praise him in the midst of it because it's for his glory, it's for our good. Now, I think what happens too oftentimes is that we miss interpret it as I'm going to rejoice in spite of my circumstances. Basically, I don't like what's happening, but I'm going to rejoice in spite of it because scripture tells me to. So I'm going to be very displeased with my circumstances, but I'm going to still try to find reasons to rejoice. That's not, that doesn't, that doesn't work if we apply that to Example, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine if we read that as, more than that, we rejoice in spite of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it, it wouldn't work for us to say that we rejoice in spite of our circumstances. Paul's really calling us to rejoice in our circumstances, to be thankful for the sufferings that we're enduring. Not just to be... Uh, thankful in spite of them, but to actually be thankful in the midst of them. Uh, and the reason for that, Paul gives us the benefits that flow from our sufferings. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. The lost find no joy in tribulations and sufferings because their happiness is marred and the lost person has lost all that he has. So for a lost person, their happiness gets all out of whack and all distorted because their happiness is all wrapped up in their circumstances here in life. So when, when they're going through a time where there's no job, where they're going through a time where, where there's significant loss in their life, their happiness gets all distorted because, hey, this is all I've got. The Christian has the hope of the future. And the Christian has a different perspective about the here and now. The Christian rejoices in his sufferings now because of what it will ultimately produce down the road. It says, for a Christian, despite the darkness around, there is assurance that morning is coming. We rejoice in our tribulations, not in spite of them, because they are preparing us for glory. 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18 says this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, the sufferings that you're enduring now are preparing you for the future. They do something for us. They produce three things, Paul tells us. Endurance, character, and hope. This is all part of the process of God making us into the image of Christ. And it's natural for us to expect suffering because his son suffered as well. 
Now think of it in these terms. If we're talking about endurance and character and hope, these are things that, that are, are important both from a physical standpoint and a spiritual standpoint. So let's think of it physically and how this works. We can be thankful for the difficulty of working out and trying to get in shape because of the benefits that flow out of that. So we can, we can work to get in shape. We can be working out, running, training, and it's difficult. It's hard, but it produces good in our life. It produces endurance. Think about the fact if you had to run a marathon, okay? So you've signed up to run a marathon. In no way would any of us just expect to show up and begin to run that marathon on the day of. There would be training that took place to lead to that ultimate demonstration of, of who we are physically. And for, for some of us that are more out of shape than others, it would take some gradual working up to that point, right? So we'd start off maybe trying to run a mile without having to stop. You know, just I'm going I'm to try to run a mile without having to walk any of it. Now I'm going to try to go to two miles. And we would try to gradually work up. And we're building endurance, right? So you can't just show up and run a marathon unless you have built up endurance to do such a thing. So that, that effort, that work, that suffering leading up to that marathon builds the endurance, the character that you're going to need to be successful during that marathon. Now think of it in terms of spiritual uh, significance. The, the, the scriptures have promised, and we saw it all through Thessalonians, that there are trials and difficulties coming for God's people in the future. That there's coming a time of apostasy where people are going to walk away from the faith. And we don't have clear details about why that's going to be. Is it going to be intense persecution that happens? Is there going to be a, an antichrist that shows up with deceptive false teaching? Probably a combination of all of that. Imagine if everything was great for the Christian no hard times, no difficulties, and then boom, this great apostasy shows up. We've got no endurance built up to endure this great time of suffering potentially that's coming. Paul says, you glory and you rejoice in your sufferings now, knowing that it is equipping you both from an endurance standpoint and a character standpoint to resist even greater things that are coming in the future. The difficulties that we experience now are like trying to run that mile without stopping in anticipation of the marathon that's coming down the road. Paul says, you rejoice in these little things, knowing that ultimately it's preparing you for bigger things potentially down the road where you're going to need this endurance. You're going to need this character. You're going to need this future hope to cause you to persevere to the end. Our salvation is secure, but remember, all through the New Testament, we are called to persevere. We are called to make it to the end. Paul says God uses things like suffering to cause us to endure to the end. It's a benefit of being justified. Is that our trials and our difficulties produce good in our life, and they don't just ruin our happiness like a lost person. Next, there's an unashamed hope that we gain from being justified. It's not something that will ultimately disappoint us. He says, a hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a hope that will ultimately not disappoint. Colossians 1 verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, 
that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we, have, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The benefit that the Christian has is knowing that the things that we're putting our hope in, they won't disappoint us. We won't get to the end and find out that it didn't work out the way that we hoped. There is no disappointment in our future. Time after time after time in sports, people have these, these grand hopes of their team uh, based on all the, the preseason acquisitions that we're going to win the championship this year. And time after time, fan bases are disappointed. Their hope of, of, of glory at the end of that season falls well short. The Christian doesn't have to worry about that. Our hope is assured. We have that confidence. We don't have to worry about a hope that we'll ultimately be disappointed in. Next, the love of God is something that flows out of that justified state. Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. I was sharing with Connor and Juju this morning. It's not a love that's based on desirability. We're gonna, as you continue to read through Romans 5, you find out that God loved us when we were at our absolute worst. When we were sinners and enemies of his. That's when he loved us. So there was no desirability there. There was no reason to love us. We didn't have anything to offer. And yet God loved us and he began to work for our salvation in the midst of us being so undesirable. Now that he's rescued us, he's made us desirable, right? He's, he's filled us with the Holy Spirit. He's invested in us. We can now trust that his love will continue for us because he loved us when we weren't desirable. Now he's created desirability in us. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit. He's bestowed upon us spiritual blessings. He's invested in us. He started a work in us. Paul says we can trust that he'll finish that work. I was using the illustration with uh, Juju and Connor. It's the perspective that we could have in an adoption. So Ryan and Cindy choose to adopt a girl in Ethiopia. A girl that for all practical purposes has no desirability for them, right? They have no history with her. They have no investment in her. They simply get a picture that comes across a computer screen that says, do you want her? She's got a difficult past. She comes from a difficult family situation. There's going to be obstacles that you have to overcome. Do you guys want to spend the money that you've raised? Do you want to, to invest the time and energy to bring this girl into your family? They make the decision, yes. When she's least desirable, when she has nothing to offer, no history, they can easily delete the email and say, let's go to the next kid that we can adopt. Now that they've put all this time and energy to go there, Cindy spends months over there to bring her home. They work through all the logistics of making it happen. Now that she's home, she should have an assured state of mind that they're never going to send me back. We have a history now. We have memories together. You've prayed with me at night. We've been, going, we've been, we've been sleeping together in the same bed. We've got all these, these things that are happening now. She's not going to be perfect. She's going to disobey. There's going to be times that are rougher than, than other days. But they're never going to contemplate sending her back. And she doesn't ever have to worry about being sent back because they obtained her when she had no desirability. Now they love her dearly. And they're making all these memories with her that are going to never, it would never even cross their mind to send her back. 
That's the perspective that Paul gives us. He says, God loved you when you were enemies, when you were, uh, when you were in need of reconciliation, when there was all these issues there. No reason to, to desire us. He rescues us. Now he's filled us with the Holy Spirit. He's bestowed all these blessings upon us. He's started a work in us. He's investing in us. We can trust that he's going to complete all that. We have that assurance, that love of God that flows from that justified state. And then lastly, in this section, we have the Holy Spirit. He says he's given us the Holy Spirit. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Paul will continue to come back to the work of the Holy Spirit now, but this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit. And we've been given that seal of our salvation. So there's a present reality, things that we possess now because we've been justified. These are truths that as long as we stay ignorant about these things, we won't enjoy them even though they're there. The more we know about this, the more we enjoy these benefits. But secondly, Paul says, since we've been justified, we shall be some different things. There are some things that we don't fully possess now. It's a future hope. In your notes there, it's a future hope. So previously we have a present reality. Now we have a future hope. These are things that are coming to us. These are things that we are looking forward to. He says in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That's simply saying that there are, there are plenty of cases where somebody, because of desirability, somebody would be willing to die for them. Um, an example that comes to mind immediately is AJ and I were watching Finding Nemo yesterday. His dad is willing to do anything to get his son back, right? Like he'll put his life on the line to get his son back. Paul's saying, that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon for you to potentially lay down your life for somebody that you deem worth laying your life down for. Parents would feel this towards their children. Spouses would feel this towards each other. Um, maybe you have a, a really good close friend that you might would consider dying for, dying in their place. Paul says, that's not completely unheard of, but the idea of Christ dying in our place for enemies, for, for rebellious sinners, that doesn't register for us. We don't see examples of people being willing to do that. We get the proof of God's love. So this is number uh, nine. The proof of God's love. He definitely died for me. He shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So number 10 there, saved from wrath by his perfect life. Now, these are things that we enjoy now, but we don't fully enjoy them yet until that day when Christ returns, where we really see that wrath that we're supposed to experience not fall upon us, where we really get to see that God truly loves us when we're spared from that wrath. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And the last benefit, the joy of reconciliation. The joy of reconciliation. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
We shall be saved by him in the future. We enjoy those benefits now. Ultimately, we see those all come to fruition in the future. These are blessings that flow from justification. This has practical bearing on our life right now. The only way that you're going to enjoy peace and true hope is if you really understand justification and the blessings and benefits that come from it. That leads us into the second portion, the consequence of headship. We see two heads here. We see Adam as the head of the human race. We see Christ coming as the head of uh, the church. Those that are in believing faith placed in relationship with him. This section closes the discussion on justification by contrasting condemnation in Adam and justification in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this idea of two Adams, and this is the best way to kind of remember what's going on in Romans 5. There's a comparing and contrasting of these two Adams. Adam being the first Adam, Christ being considered the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This section gives us some insight, not just into our practical life, but it gives us insight into the book of Genesis and the origin of of the world. There's a lot of debate about Genesis, specifically the first couple of chapters, and uh, how historically accurate is it? Is it meant to be interpreted allegorically? You run into some serious issues about interpreting the book of Genesis allegorically when you come to Romans chapter 5. I believe Romans chapter 5 completely supports the, the historicity of Adam, the fact that he was a genuine, true individual man, not a representative figurehead. Uh, of what evolved into what we have today as mankind. There's some people that want to blur and blend the idea of evolution and creation, that God got the whole thing started and then he used means of evolution to give us what we have today. The only problem with that is that you really have to figure out how to reconcile that with Romans chapter 5. Um, the, the age of the earth there's a, lot, there's a lot of debate right now in science. Some of you watched the debate with Bill Nye and Ken Ham. There's a lot of believing Christians that would support an old earth perspective. And I haven't looked into all the arguments for it. And, and when, we ever, when we get to the chance to study the book of Genesis, we're going to spend some time on that. But the age of the earth comes into question because of the fossil record and people wanting to show that Hey, the fossils, the death that we see here shows that the earth is far older than what uh, a lot of Christians want to claim being six to 10,000 years old. That it's got to be millions of years old because of the fossil record. The only problem with that is that Christians and, and evolutionists agree that man hasn't been around that long. That man has not been around for millions of years. That man really only has been around within the last uh, 10 to 20,000 years. And so to, to entertain the idea that the earth is millions of years old implies that death had to have been around before man. For these fossil records to be accurate, there has to be death in the earth uh, for these animals and stuff to die to create those fossils. And then man and 
what the Bible teaches, Adam would come far after that. The issue with that is what we find in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's difficult to see death coming into this world before sin actually happened. The teaching seems to be here. Now, some would say, oh, death was around because when we talk about the curse here, we're just talking about how it applies to to mankind. We're going to see in Romans chapter eight that sin did something not just to mankind, but to the entire creative order. That creation longs and groans for Jesus to come back to set things right, which means it's not just mankind that got messed up by sin. There's a creation aspect that got messed up. So this passage here gives us some insight into how to even understand the origins of the earth. It also gives us insight to see that there is a biblical idea that man is head over woman, that there's a headship that exists there in the male aspect of the race, because Adam is the one who's condemned here for sin, not Eve, even though, as we see it play out in the narrative sense, Eve is the one that eats of the tree first. Ultimately, we would see Adam being Uh, The one that's responsible because of his sin, because of his lack of initiative to protect the garden like he was tasked to do. Adam is the one that's held responsible for the sin that enters into the world that also brings death. First here, the devastating work of Adam. When sin reigns, death reigns. When sin reigns, death reigns. The work of Adam opened the door for sin to enter this world, and death followed sin into every crevice of creation. Because of what Adam does, it opens the door for sin and death. And we're all cursed because of it. This is significant. Don't dismiss this as though, yeah, everybody believes that. The Mormons do not believe this. The Mormon church does not believe that every single human has been affected by sin. They believe that when we make choices to sin, that we become sinful. That we follow in the example of Adam. Not the fact that we've been cursed by Adam. <coughs> the Bible tells us that we all sinned with Adam. His vote counts for the human race. We experience the consequences of that vote. It says that so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Two things here. Adam's work led to the sin of all men, and Adam's work led to the death of all men. His work led to the sin of all men. His work led to the death of all men. Now, what do you think it means by men sinned, but not in the same likeness as Adam? That the transgressions were different. What do you think that means? says that man continued to sin before the law was given, uh, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What do you think that means? Any thoughts on that? Okay, yeah, sin didn't exist before Adam, but there was a, a continual sinning that happened after Adam that was different than Adam's sin. Yeah, Adam directly disobeys special revelation. God tells him to do something, and Adam does the opposite. 
you don't see that pattern really happen again until the law does come at Mount Sinai, where God says, this is my expectations. But Paul says, there was still sin. You can look at Genesis 6 and see how wicked the world was that brought the, the flood. So it wasn't that sin didn't exist, but Paul's still attacking that mindset that it's all based on the law. Paul says, before the law even came, people were sinning and they were dying because of what happened with Adam, but also they were sinning against that law in their hearts. So Adam sinned differently. He directly disobeyed God. Everybody in Noah's time and, and all the way up leading up to Moses, they were rebelling and sinning against the law in their heart, that conscience. So it was a little different. It still brings death. still brings death. It also explains why babies die without making a sinful choice. They're guilty of what Adam did in the garden. And so it brings death. It brings death to every single individual. We don't, we don't, be, we don't become subjected to death when we make sinful choices. We're already subjected to death because we're aligned with Adam. His vote counts for us. We see this happen where, where one individual's actions affect everybody else. Saul's sin affected every single one of his descendants. He abdicated the throne because of his sinful rebellion. Jonathan didn't do anything in regards to disobeying what led to Saul getting kicked off the throne, but it directly affected Jonathan's future. Jonathan never sat on the throne. It was David that became the next king. So we see all through history, both scripturally and just in natural history, people's actions affect other people. Adam's sin, his vote for sin in the garden affects every single one of us. Uh, the extraordinary work of Christ, though, when grace reigns, life reigns. When grace reigns, life reigns. The work of Christ goes as deep and deeper than the work of Adam and goes as far and farther in its effects. It goes as deep and deeper and it goes as far and farther in its effects. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Christ's obedience is greater than Adam's sin. What Christ does is greater than what Adam did. Adam essentially starts a fire in a forest. He makes one willful decision to rebel, and then that fire spreads to, to everybody. Christ has to come in and put the fire out. So we were talking this morning with Juju and Connor. Which one's greater? Which one's harder? To start a little fire or to leave your campsite and not fully put the fire out and then it turn into a forest fire? Or the people that are responsible to bring the helicopters and the fire trucks to put out the fire? Obviously, one takes a lot more work and effort. Christ's work is greater than the work of Adam. He makes one willful decision to sin and it spreads to everybody. Christ comes in, lives a perfect life, absorbs God's wrath on the cross. His work is irreversible. Adam's work was reversible. That too makes Christ better. See, if you think about that timeline chart, we said that we all start off innocent or Adam starts off innocent and then he sins and so we're all sinful. Christ comes in and he rescues us back to that innocent state and then he applies his perfection here. So we're now declared righteous. We're declared right before God and that verdict is final. We can't ever be brought back to sinful status in God's eyes. His work is greater than Adam's. It can't be reversed. 
Christ ultimately rescues those from the curse, just as God promised in Genesis 3.15. So two things about Christ's work. Christ's work will lead to righteousness for all believers, and Christ's work will lead to life for all believers. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, that's the glory of sanctification and glorification. We've been declared righteous. But Paul says in verse 19, we will be made righteous one day. It won't just be a legal status. It'll be a reality where we are righteous. We are right all the time. We are perfect. We are completely conformed to the image of Christ. And then lastly, the doctrine of imputation. A couple things I wanted to highlight here for you. What we've been talking about this morning is imputation. It's the idea of something being counted or credited to one's account. In verse 18, Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. For the Christian, Adam's sin was imputed to him. His sin was imputed to Christ, and Christ's obedience was imputed to him. There's three points of imputation there. We all received Adam's sin as though we did it. Christ receives our sin as though he did it. And then we receive as believers Christ's obedience as though we earned it. So lots of transactions happening there. We receive Adam's sin. We're born sinful. We can exchange that sin to Christ who is treated as sinful on the cross. And we can receive his obedience and now be treated as righteous in the eyes of God. It's important, too, that we understand that this is based on headship and not individual acts. In my notes, I put, um, so verse 12 basically says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam and are counted guilty. We don't experience death because we sin individually. We experience death because of what Adam did. And that allows the second part to be true. So also righteousness came into the world through one man and life through righteousness. And so life spread to all men because all in Christ are counted righteous. My deepest problem is not my individual acts of sin, but my connection to Adam's sin. Therefore, my path to righteousness does not rely on performing individual acts of righteousness, but my connection to the perfect obedience of Christ. See, far too many people on this earth believe that their problem is that they have committed acts of sin. And so the way to fix that is to perform acts of obedience, to be good. If we can get our good works to outweigh our bad works, then we'll be okay. In, in sharing the gospel with people, we have to show them that their greatest issue is that they are connected to Adam in the garden. That they are sinful at the core. And they can't fix that problem in and of themselves. That trying to be good doesn't fix it because they're condemned because of the headship of Adam. And the only way they can be saved is through the headship of Christ. It's not acts of righteousness that saves us. It's being connected to being in Christ and his perfection that saves us. So two questions of application to finish up today.
a question from each section of this chapter, both the blessings of justification and the consequences of headship. First question, do I understand the depths of justification so that tribulation is a cause of rejoicing? Do I understand the depths of justification so that tribulation is a cause of rejoicing? It's how we we weather the storm. When we're going through difficult times, and we're going to always have people in our church going through difficult times. And it's great for us to be there for them. It's great for us to encourage them. But it has to be an encouragement that's coming from a deep knowledge of God's word or it falls on empty ears. It doesn't, it doesn't penetrate to the heart if it's not coming from a deep knowledge of how God works things. The only way we can encourage people in tribulation and difficulties is if we have a, a deep knowledge of God and justification in the gospel. It's how we encourage. It's how we weather these storms. It's how we make sure that suffering produces the desired effect, endurance, character, hope. It flows out of us being justified and understanding what that means. Do I understand the depths of justification appropriately so that tribulation is a cause of rejoicing? And then secondly, do I understand the purpose of the law properly So that I see salvation based on Christ and not me. Look what Paul says here at the end. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Christ or grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law is not the answer to the problem. We're cursed because of Adam's sin. God does not bring the law into play to fix it. And that's where most people that we're going to encounter get hung up. They think that being obedient to some standard of law is what will fix them in the end and make them acceptable before God. We have to understand the purpose of the law properly. That it was brought in to show how sinful we are. Paul says mankind was sinful before the law came into into revelation here on this earth. But the law was given to show just how sinful we really are. And sinful man reacted to the law and sin increased. But thankfully, grace increases far more. It abounds far more. That when we put our faith and trust in the work of Christ, we can be saved absent from any attempts that we make to be good in God's eyes. So, Do we understand the depths of justification? Is that translating to our daily life? Are we rejoicing in our suffering? And are we maintaining a proper perspective about the law? Because it's easy for a Christian to fall back into that mindset too. What we said coming starting out, it's real easy to start to think that sanctification is what makes us acceptable before God. And so somebody in our church is more acceptable to God than somebody else because of how faithful they're living. And that's not the case. The law is not what makes us acceptable. It's Christ's performance, Christ's earned perfection for us that makes us right in God's eyes. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.